going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Always So Podcast, a production of Wilwood's Faith and Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Sikas, and grateful to have you joining me for another amazing episode today. Okay, well, today on the show, I'm actually a guest on somebody else's show, Dr. Brett Salkold, who is the Archdiocesan Theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina, Canada, in his podcast called Thinking Faith, together with Deacon Eric, up on that show had me as a guest back in June to talk about dating well, boundaries, relationships, everything surrounding, you know, kind of dating scene and what's going on and what's happening. So I was on their show, which I got the files for and I'm putting it on my show. You see how this works with podcasting? It's so much fun. We could do this type of stuff. So this originally aired back in June on the Thinking Faith podcast. I'm a guest on their show answering questions about boundaries, about relationships, about dating as a process of sermon, like I said. So check out their their podcast, Thinking Faith. The link to that is available in the show notes. But you're gonna love this conversation. Actually, this episode aired in two parts, which is why you're seeing that two hour time frame on there. No pressure, you don't have to listen to it all. I'm just putting it all as one part for you, my listeners here on the Always So podcast. So if you find this episode helpful, please, you know, leave a writing, leave a writing, what am I saying? Leave a review, write something nice about it, share with your friends on social media, happy just to be able to spread the word about the good work we're doing with the show to help people grow in their emotional and spiritual health. So let's get into this conversation that I had with Dr. Brett Salkel. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Brett Sockold here again uh, in studio. Uh, I've got with me, to, Deacon Eric, by the way, is is off for a little bit. Well, I shouldn't say he's off. He's still working his tail off, but uh, he's not with us today for this podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. Mario Sacasa. Is that how I say your name? Sacasa. You got it. Sacasa. Okay, not, yes. Not, mi, that. Mikasa, so, Sukasa, you know. So okay. So. <laughs> uh, Dr. Mario Sacasa, uh, who has uh, developed an online course Uh, called Dating Well. And I was put in touch with Dr. Mario uh, in part because I've done work on this in a previous life. Uh, er, You know, over 10 years ago, I published my first book uh, called How Far Can We Go? A Catholic Guide to Sex and Dating. And so I've been looking at uh, Dr. Mario's uh, online course. I wish I could have completed the whole thing, but time did not permit. Uh, but we've just you're passed we've got, it. You're already married. You're good. <laughs> I passed it. Well, we'll talk about how much I passed it and whether I should have done some remedial work here first. Um, but uh, we'll get into that. But allow me first just to welcome you, uh, Mario, Thanks, to the show. And why don't you tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Brett. I appreciate the introduction. I'm grateful that that you know you're having me on the show to be able to talk about dating well. Um, yeah. So to tell the audience, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, in the state of Louisiana. Um, in America here, and I have a private counseling practice, but that I've been operating and and been in practice for over 15 years as a therapist. I'm a Catholic therapist, and so I I like to integrate my faith into my work appropriately. I think a a good therapist, a solid therapist, is one who's strong in the faith and strong in the science and able to kind of breathe with both lungs, so to speak, and able able to operate at both perspectives. Um, And I also work for a ministry, a marriage ministry here in the Archdiocese of New Orleans called uh, Willwood's Faith and Marriage. And it's through Faith and Marriage that I do my own podcast called Always Hope and put together this Dating Well series. And we do marriage retreats and speaking engagements and, and all that fun stuff as well. So just a little bit about myself. I'm also married, my beautiful wife, Kristen, uh, 19 years, and we have four boys. Our oldest who just graduated high school last week, which is crazy. Um, so 
so we're, 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 we're stepping into kind of a new phase with a young adult now, which is, which is really crazy. So that's a little cool. bit about myself. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for that. And yeah, so I, I said you were a doctor, but I didn't specify. Uh, and so, um, I'll, I'll get you in a second to just share a few of the details of your course, but let me draw out this doctor thing. I wrote this book as a newly married person based mm-hmm. on work I had done largely before I was married. Uh, and, and I think a lot of, you know, this first episode, we'll talk a bit about where our work overlaps, you know? So I came to your work with my own lenses in terms of the work I had done to see, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little cautious around some resources in this area. And, and you and I have talked about, uh, yep. you know, some reasons to be cautious around certain kinds of resources in this area. But then there's, then there's something that I did not have in my pocket at all 12 years ago, which was um, an ex- you know, a long-term experience of marriage with its struggles. Uh, and then obviously what you have that I don't is, is sitting on the other side of the desk from other uh, people who are struggling in their marriage. And so uh, I'm really interested to explore with you uh, in the second part of this, questions around arguments, wounds, healing, differences. Um, you know, I, I was I was a little bit naive, at least, uh, when I wrote uh, the book to not include those things. I, I don't think I, I said anything, you know, that I would take back, but talking to my own children about their own expectations uh, for marriage, there's things I would certainly add at this point. And so uh, I really want to explore those in part two. Um, and in part one, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about where where our work overlapped. But but before sure. we do that, I just want to uh, say I want to give people a heads up on the course. So the the course is is uh, video and then reflection questions. That's the basic format. Work through it at your own sort of pace. Work through it on your own or with a partner or with a group of friends. So it's very flexible in, in that way. Um, and then some of the things included in it uh, modules on things like uh, dating apps which was not a thing when I wrote my book, uh, things about long distance relationships, you know, so there's lots of really practical stuff. What other things would you, would you add just as a kind of intro to the, to the course there for people and, and tell us where we can get it by the way. Yeah. So, uh, you certainly can get it on our website at faithinmarriage.org. We use the platform thinkific. Um, so if you just go to faithinmarriage.org, you will have links to, to dating well, um, right on the, right on the website. Um, but the only thing I would add is that, it, like you said, it's 19 video lessons. And so in each of the lessons kind of range between seven to 17 minutes in length. Um, so I really wanted to create it for the for the busy user. I, I get that that everybody's on the go. And and this is one of those things where, you know, it's video, but certainly just like people watch video podcasts on on Spotify. Now, if you just want to listen to it and, and plop it in the cup holder, you know, as you're driving to work, then, you know, you might be able to get a, a lesson or two in at a time. Um, and so I think that I really was trying to, to, to create it as user-friendly as possible. Um, those transcripts, like you said, also, if you're the type of person that likes to have the, the words in front of you, or if you want to take the reflection questions, um, afterwards, then like, like I said, I have the transcripts available for you to download. Um, if you want to download them to, to an iPad and take that to the, to the chapel, if you want to print them and take that to some reflection, you can do that as well. So really try to make it as flexible and as user-friendly as possible. But at the same time, wanting to really kind of give people some some meat, give people some things to really think about. Um, so the questions are certainly you're going to get you to reflect a little bit on, on your past and and really kind of digging and thinking about previous experiences and previous relationships. And if you're in a current relationship, how you feel about it, um, because as I'm sure we'll get into the process of the sermon 
is primarily an interior process where one, you have to kind of learn what's going on under the hood, who I am, what my reactions are, what my experience is, and how does God communicate to me through those consolations or desolations. And it's primarily there that we, that we make decisions about where we feel God is calling us to. Um, and so putting more emphasis on the interior life than simply on, on external signs, um, which is kind of, I know what we were talking about earlier, sometimes the programs that can be overly pious, I have nothing against, of course, praying your novena and, and, and asking St. Therese for the roses at the end, for sure. I never get the roses. Um, that's not me. I'm, I'm, I'm not that person. I don't get the sun dancing at the end of the, the you know, the, of the novena. Um, but if that's you, then praise the Lord. But even if those things happen, then certainly they must always be confirming what you are already experiencing interiorly. And if you haven't done that interior work first, then you can quickly miss something or be too quick looking for signs um, and, and expecting the answer to come in the wrong spaces. So right. things like that, you know, that we get into in dating well. Yeah, excellent. So, so let's let's jump in here to part one and think a bit about um, questions around discernment stages, progress. Um, one of the things. So, I I wrote my book in response. We were talking before the show. I was given a book uh, when I was a teenager called "I Kissed Dating Goodbye" by Joshua yep. Harris, and it was famous for saying you should save your first kiss uh, for the altar. Yeah. And I was repelled by that book uh, for that reason, among other reasons. Um, and and started to explore what what dating looks like in terms of um, progress in intimacy. And of mm -hmm. course, for a lot of people, the, that question, the most obvious way to think about that question is in terms of physical intimacy, right? How far right, can right, we go? Right. That's That's right. the title of the book I wrote. Uh, a question you referenced in, in very similar wording in your in your own uh, course that I was looking at this morning, um, but but to contextualize that question of physical intimacy within a broader relationship where the whole point is discernment and growth in intimacy mm -hmm. in a range of areas. So physical intimacy isn't the only question. Um, you can go on a first date where someone overshares. Yep. Uh, and that's, that's too much emotional intimacy too soon. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Um, uh, uh, spiritual intimacy, you mentioned in your, in your course, uh, praying with the other person, you know, one of the things I, I found when I was working on this was some people find that too intimate at first. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's a good thing to do. So how do you build up to being able to, to do that? Um, one thing we recommended is like, if, if it's too tough to pray with someone right off the hop, start by praying for someone and mm -hmm. just let them know you're praying for them. That's a good step on the way to praying with them. Right. So th those were some of the themes that I had explored. And when I, when I was looking at your course, I found that we really, we really overlapped a lot. And, and what, what is so heartening for me is the realism of it. Mm -hmm. It's practical. It gives you concrete questions to think about and ask and discern with your partner. Um, it's not too much of this kind of work can be idealized. There's a, there's an ideal of purity or an ideal of romance or whatever that doesn't touch the ground in terms of good psychology, but even in just in terms of basic self-knowledge, uh, we can live in these, these idealized worlds. And, and that I've, I don't know how many times I've seen that lead to, problems in relationships, but you've probably seen it at a, at a level that I don't see, you know? Um, so there, there's a whole bunch of thoughts I just throw at you. Uh, 
Yeah, I, like, I guess, I mean, yeah, there's a lot there, certainly. But I guess what I'm feeling is, as you're kind of speaking is, well, certainly that it, it, that realism, I was very intentional about that in this program because a lot of this came out of a response to what I was seeing in counseling. And I've been doing this work a long time, you know, 15 plus years as a therapist. And, and in the last 10, seven years or something like that, I've just really seen a lot of, a lot of young people struggling with questions about basic questions about asking people out and um, how to take the next step and things that I didn't, we didn't struggle with. We kind of had clarity in terms of what progression in a relationship looks like. And, and so I really was thinking about like, well, well why, why is that the case? Why is there so much confusion or, or difficulty? And so as I was asking that question and then finding myself repeating myself in my counseling sessions, I was like, okay, it might be time to just put these ideas out there and, uh, and let's see where they go. And so I started by doing um, an open Q&A session. It's one of my early episodes in the podcast. I went to Louisiana State University and they did an open Q&A with students there. And it was so well received. I mean, like the people were just hungry for, the, for, for just that, that type of free flowing format. And, uh, and I thought, okay, well, this is something that we can do. You know, if I'm in a marriage ministry, well then part of, mar part of marriage is, is you know, premarital marriage preparation, you know, like you, like you have to start even earlier and understanding, okay, well, what's even the purpose of dating and what are we doing when we're dating? And how does that set you up for a good engagement? And then how does that set you up for, for a healthy marriage as well? So that's really where the idea came from. And so I wanted it to be, like you said, not just it's practical for sure, but we do deal with, with some theoretical concepts as well. But I didn't want it to be, um, I think, if you've, as you've mentioned, overly, overly pious or overly spiritual that isn't a spiritualism uh, that isn't that isn't grounded in in reality you know so trying not to put too many crazy expectations on people or too many you know statements of like well this is what you have to do type of thing and recognizing that that uh that there is uh, uh nuance in 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 challenges that people experience which we want to honor and at the same time, there is a tell us to a relationship. There is a journey. There is a, a purpose to it. And so we want to honor that too. And so trying to hit the balance between both of those, um, I think was the challenge of the course, but, but I'm grateful that you picked up on that and, uh, and others who have listened to it or watched it as well have, have said similar comments. So, right. Yeah. Let me throw a couple thoughts at you. One of Let's the go. things I was reacting against with, uh, my response to I kiss dating goodbye is, is a, a concern that if, and I've seen this in other contexts, a concern that um, physical intimacy is framed basically as a problem to be avoided, mm -hmm. right? And so whatever you do, don't do, you know, too much physically, um, sets people up with a sense that, that it, a, a lack of the sense of the goodness of physical intimacy in a relationship that it's largely something to be feared. And one thing I was totally refreshed by in, in your uh, course, I heard you mention the word flirt or flirting or flirty a few times, always with a positive connotation. Mm -hmm. And I know people who've got the impression that flirting is like, is, is bad. <laughs> and and like, that's really hard actually, right? When you're in a relationship or when you're in a, even at the point of marriage, mm -hmm. if you've gotten the impression that physical intimacy is basically something to be avoided, it's a danger to be avoided. And even flirting is somehow inappropriate. 
I mean, of course it can be. It can be, absolutely. There's all kinds it of times can when, be. when you shouldn't do it, right? <laughs> yeah, Don't we, do it right, in a job right. interview. Uh, right, right, but, right. right or, or any kind, like there's lots of, <laughs> but in itself, yeah. it's a good thing that you actually need to learn how to do and have a healthy relationship with. And I was just so refreshed to see that because I don't know how many people I know who've struggled with, like you spend 10 years trying not to flirt and yeah. not to be physically intimate, you know, let's say from the time you're 13 to 23, and then you've got to figure out how, and it's associated with shame and guilt. And, you know, anyways, uh, so the, the goodness of those elements, you know. Yeah. I mean, so I think you said this in your book also that, um, there, it, there are stages of intimacy and this isn't, this isn't groundbreaking people, you know, other, other people have spoken about this as well, but it's important to just know that as I see it, emotional intimacy, uh, leads to spiritual intimacy, which leads to physical intimacy and that there should be a type of synergy that happens across those. Now in our culture, we don't really understand what any of those intimacies mean. Uh, maybe emotional intimacy because we have so much, you know, pop psychology available to us that we have, we have some understanding of that, but I would say, uh, a spiritual intimacy, but then certainly the physical intimacy, we, we don't know how, we don't have a proper definition of sex or what sex is is meant for is it is it just for for pleasure is it is it just a a, a theme park excursion you know that i have with another person um, or is it something that does build and and unify a relationship in the catholic sense we would say that it's the latter of course and so if it's going to build and be this this inc incredible bonder well, then certainly it has to be maintained within the context of marriage. So nothing I'm proposing is is taking away the church's teachings. I, I love the church's teachings. I believe, you know, wait wait for marriage, of course, you know, when it comes to, to, to having sex. But what I'm arguing in the course, though, is that what dating is, is is there's st the various stages in a relationship build on one another. And and they build on one another by 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 seeing, you know, by intimacy, by responsibility, by commitment to the other person that these things develop and deepen as you move along and progress along in a relationship. But you should see in a dating relationship the seeds or at least the precursors of something that can flourish in engagement and, and come to full full you know fruition in marriage. That those are things that you should start experiencing. Again, maybe not at the first dates, but when you're in a serious dating relationship, that you should start being able to see as it, as the relationship develops different qualities about the person that that you appreciate, that you enjoy, rest, um, friendship, and also you know sexual attraction. Um, that you should be, I think, physically attracted uh, to the person that you're dating, um, because obviously sex will come later in marriage, and there should be obviously that's part of a healthy relationship as well. And so again, to whatever degree, I get that people date different people and, and sometimes you date somebody who you have crazy amount of chemistry with, but very, very little emotional intimacy with, that obviously wouldn't be a healthy relationship. But then the opposite also is that where maybe you've suppressed it so much that you don't even know how to engage it anymore with the person that you're with, I would also say that that, that, that is problematic. And so, so much of this process is trying to find um, the right path and the right way forward. Um, but certainly I, I don't set up in any way that you should wait or, or leave the kissing, you know, for, for, for the altar. Um, that book obviously has been pulled that you, you spoke about if people don't know. Um, obviously, it created great scandal within the evangelical community, great damage within the evangelical community. The whole purity culture that emerged out of it um, created great problems for people. And so the, the author has, has, has since recanted his, his, his message. The book has been pulled by the publishers. 
Um, and so what they've recognized is exactly this, that like we have to have um, a better approach, a more nuanced approach that honors the reality of people's circumstances and, um, and, and being able to help them and guide them to come to better decisions uh, when it comes to things like, you know, physical attraction. Right, right. Um, I you mentioned these terms and they were really important in your course, uh, the relationship between intimacy, commitment, and responsibility. Yeah. Uh, that, that as a relationship grows in any of one of those things, those three things grow together. And mm -hmm. that intimacy in that context does not just mean physical intimacy, though that's mm -hmm. part of it, but it also means emotional and spiritual intimacy, that growth in, in intimacy in any of those areas has sort of concomitant growth in commitment and responsibility. And so I, I just found that a very helpful framework. Do you want to talk a little bit about those those three categories and how yeah, they work? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. One more thing I want to say about the physical intimacy specifically. You know, we, you said if, if you measure it all, always in suspicion, then yeah, you're setting people up for failure. The other piece that I would say also is that relationships have to have healthy amounts of non-sexual physical contact. And even in marriage, you have to have a healthy degree of non-sexual physical contact, like holding hands and hugging and snuggling on the couch, just sitting next to each other. And so there has to be kind of uh, gradations of physical intimacy um, where you're allowing for a full expression of that to take place in, in a relationship. Because if not, it, it creates pressure that if you're only having physical contact when you're leading to sex, then in marriage, that puts a lot of pressure on any time that you have physical contact, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and then people start to avoid it. And then people start to avoid it exactly right. they're not or one partner starts yep. to avoid it yep exactly. <laughs> and and that leads to all kinds of trouble yeah that's exactly right that's exactly right and all sorts of suspicion that happens you know my why is he sitting next to me why is he holding my hand what, what does she want you know what is she after you know type of thing so we want to avoid all of that all, by having you know healthy degrees of 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 uh of expression you know physically um so yeah as as you're saying uh, what what with intimacy you know responsibility and commitment that as you're, as you're growing to know the person, as you're growing to, to understand who they are in an emotional level, let's, let's say there, you know, like, like you said earlier, you, you can't go into a first date and just lay out all your past and all your experiences and everything you've ever been through. Like, that's just totally inappropriate. Uh, people have to be, tr people have to earn your trust. You, you have to be, um, like your story is, is, is meaningful and it's important and it's, and it's a treasure. You're, your, your experiences in life are, are, are a treasure, uh, whether they're good or bad, and they're not something that you just open up to everybody. People have to earn your trust. And so you, you gradually reveal those things as the relationship matures and develops. Well, as intimacy grows then, what also happens is, is the sense of like, if it's done right, it's almost like the sense of wanting to take care of the other person. Not in a sick kind of codependent, you know, motherly type of way, but just in a general like, like there's a real sense of like, man, like, like they're opening up to me. They're being vulnerable with me. I, I feel more like I have a, like a desire, not just a duty, but a desire to want to take care of those treasures that this person has entrusted to me. And so, you know, you grow in responsibility, you know, for the other person. That's kind of what I mean by that. Um, and then, and then in that, then there's a growth in commitment as well, like a dedication and, and a desire to want to be with this person. And so that commitment is, is an aspect of that. So again, thinking about this, you know, developmentally or in different stages, marriage would be the ultimate form of, of commitment. It's the ultimate form of responsibility. Also, your, your job is to help this person get to heaven. And so you're, you're, you're working together to, to 
you know, grow in sanctity and holiness as a couple. And then, of course, sexual intimacy, spiritual intimacy, physical, you know, emotional intimacy finds its fulfillment or its capacity to find its fulfillment, I should say, in marriage as well. But again, as I've been saying, you see, you see seeds of that even in dating. So, for example, when it comes to like responsibility, um, when your when your your boyfriend is is traveling to an, another country or another state or whatever, and they're flying back, like at some point you should be you you become the go to person who goes and picks him up from the airport. Or if you know she locks herself out of the house, um, you know, on accident, who's the first person that she contacts? Well, at some point. You know, it starts by family, then it's friends, and then at some point it becomes the significant other, you know, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, becomes that person who you kind of turn to in those moments of need. That's kind of what I'm speaking about is that eventually what happens is that you, you kind of, you, you work your way up the priority chain and you become the number one option when it comes to, to need or to fulfillment of those needs. Um, that's what I'm speaking about is that, that you see that kind of happening gradually over the relationship. So intimacy is that that sharing of, of self, that sharing of, of who you are with the other person. That commitment is is a dedication to that person and a responsibility, certainly, that there's also a desire to want to see the good for this person and you want to be able to take care of them um, you know, as best as you possibly can. So that's what I mean by that. When I uh, wrote that book, whatever, 12 years ago, we actually had charts in, in the book. It's for the audience's benefit, I sent the book to Dr. Mario and it didn't arrive yet. So he can't look at the chart. We had charts that had uh, time and commitment on one axis and intimacy on the other axis and showed that a healthy line grew gradually. Time and commitment grew over time with respect to intimacy, right? And we looked, we actually looked at like what happens when one of these lines goes way up really fast relative to the others in terms of physical or emotional intimacy so we did a, but we didn't have the category of responsibility which would be a neat overlay on, on this uh basic idea and and i wonder if you can say a little bit you you, you said it in sort of half a, a sentence in passing but can you say a little bit about you you told us something about the healthy responsibility you're, you're talking about you're not talking about codependence but what for those of us who, who who might not know as much about this or have this in our experience what would be an indication of an unhealthy taking of responsibility a kind of codependent thing and and what would be maybe some flags that that this just like you can over commit in terms of intimacy uh in ways that are unhealthy um, could you overcommit in terms of responsibility in ways that are unhealthy, uh, maybe in, in something we might call codependence? And how would, how would you know that that's happening? What would be some indications? And then is that time to get out or at least have certain kind of tough conversations? Yeah, I would say so when we talk about like over, over responsibility, um, when, yeah, you just take, you, you take on for yourself every negative thing that you're, uh, boyfriend or girlfriend is doing, or when you take responsibility, uh, you take it on yourself to have to be the one to correct them uh, for every little thing. Um, that would be a place where, where I would say that the, a line is crossed because um, individual freedoms are always intact. Um, individual personhoods are always intact. And, uh, and so you can't, you can't take on the responsibility to correct every little thing. So, excuse me. So what signs to kind of look for? Well, one, if you find yourself nagging all the time in a relationship, if you find yourself being overly critical about every little thing uh, that the person's doing, that is that the other person's doing, that's a great question for you to reflect on and ask why. Was it, is, it, is there a question of compatibility? Is there a question that we're just not fitting together? And, uh, and so maybe that's something I need to be discerning. Or is it that I'm 
I'm nervous or I'm a little bit of a controlling type. And so I'm, I'm, I'm projecting that onto them and, and, and taking responsibility, making it my duty to have to make sure that, that they are uh, doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing. Those would be some places where, where you may want to reflect a little bit, you know, on that and kind of pump the brakes a little bit and let it go and trust that the other person is, is, is obviously an adult and is trying, you know, the best that they can. So I think that's the places that I would say is when you over identify um, with the other person's problems, when you when you feel that it's it's your your responsibility to have to take on every single one of those problems, um, when you find yourself that you're overly nagging or when you find yourself even being overly manipulated, we'll go to the other extreme, you know, being overly manipulated uh, because those the, the person's using your empathy against you. Um, when you've lost any sense of individuality, uh, that's the place where, where it becomes where it becomes problematic. Right. See, he- healthy relationships are founded on a term called interdependence. And so it, you, you can have two extremes in a relationship. You can have an independent relationship where you have two people. Think of it kind of like parallel tracks where there's very little intimacy, but there's but at least we're together, whatever that means. But very little intimacy, very little sharing. And then and then in the in the other side, we have this codependency where there's an enmeshment. Um, where there isn't individual freedoms anymore, and the the we becomes more than the me, and, and and I get lost in the context of the relationship. Maybe we've all had relationships like that, where we know we've given too much or lost a sense of ourselves in that. Maybe we weren't aware of it at the time, but our families certainly were, and they told us, started telling us, but we didn't, we couldn't quite figure it out. So that type of chaotic kind of codependent relationship is 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 problematic. The middle ground is the healthy balance between me and we. It's it's that interdependence where where I am fully myself, but I'm also fully in the relationship. And, and that's, a, that's a balance that takes some time to, 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 to achieve, but that's what we're trying to seek is this kind of notion that, that you are yourself and we're in a relationship and there's a healthy balance between me and we. And that sense of interdependence um, is, is what I'm arguing for in the course. Right. So, I mean, this is something that was really important for me that I didn't know, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, and I think this is common for a lot of young, you know, pious, well-intentioned, faithful young people who are discerning marriage is you have the impression that good intentions and like basically like being a good Catholic, right, um, is, is more or less enough. Like if yeah. you've got those two things in line, right, if this other person has good intentions and and they're they're serious about practicing their faith, you can figure out anything else that comes along. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in a, in a certain sense, there's something to that, right? It, right. Like good intentions matter a lot. Uh, yeah, of course they do. Right. Of course they do. Yeah, uh, we want to be and, virtuous. We want to be achieving, you know, praying and giving to the Lord and doing the best that we can. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but where, where I think that can lead to real difficulty and, and I appreciate this in your course and even in the comments you just made um, is the question of self-awareness. Right. So, so if my identity is I'm a well-intentioned person who wants to be a good Catholic and I don't think about, know about, talk about, um, the real struggles, uh, from my family background, from my personality, from, you know, from some woundedness, uh, wherever, right. Previous relationships, bullying in high school, you name it, right. Body image, culture, culture, I mean, a million addictions, whatever, a million things. If, if I don't have the sort of self-awareness to deal with that, um, then the kinds of things you've just described, right? The codependence, for example, 
uh, can really sneak up on you, you know, um, and, and co among other things, <laughs> codependence right. is only one thing that might sneak up on you. And so what I, what I really appreciated about, about your course and something I want to talk with my own kids about, you know, when, when it's their time to be thinking about these kinds of things is a real growth in self-awareness. And then also being able to watch for whether the other person has self-awareness um, because all the good intentions in the world, as valuable as they are, don't do the work. If you, if you're not right. aware that this is a right. thing that needs work and, and relationships, marriage in particular, but even before marriage, if you're doing them right, they force you to do the work. And, yes, yes. And yeah, so, so talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, just even about the being well-intentioned, of course, we want people to be well-intentioned and I'm not saying that's the case, but sometimes we set, set it up where if I just do these things, um, then life's just going to be hunky-dory and everything's just going to kind of fall in place. And I, and, and I hate to put a wet blanket on that, but that's just not the case. That's not reality. Uh, we don't believe in a prosperity gospel in, in, in a Catholic sense. And that doesn't mean that like suffering is, you know, it's, it's going to break you. But I, I will say, I mean, we, I've had moments in my own life, not related to even relationships, but just in general, where it's like, man, I've, I've done my part, Lord, right? This is the whole Job story. Like, I haven't caused any problems. I didn't sin against you. I'm doing everything I'm asked to do. And somehow it still isn't working out for me. Um, and that happens. We have moments like that, whether it's in challenges with regards to dating relationships. I, th I feel often a lot of pain for, for single people in their 30s and 40s who have been trying, getting on the dating scene and just not able to find somebody. Couples who are infertile, similarly, that they have married couples who have tried their best, but it just isn't, they're, they're not capable um, in those moments for one reason or another. So there, it, it's not to be like, to be bleak or to say, well, then give up. You know, there's something in, it, it, of course, the pursuit of, of holiness is going to have its challenges. We're going to have crosses. We're going to have experiences that are going to that are going to lead us to to have questions of doubts, uh, questions of faith. But those things aren't even they're, they're not even really the problem either. Like we're we're supposed to ask those questions in the in the midst of suffering. Um, so I guess I just want to say that like if we fall into an overly pious way of dating or concept of dating. Then, then we can think or ascribe or say, well, as long as we just agree, you know, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that the church is, the Catholic church is the, is the one true church, that we pray together and that's all we need and that's it. I'm like, okay, great. I'm glad you have that as a foundation. But you know, your relationship is going to be built on so much more than just going to mass together. Like, absolutely, that, that is a great foundation. But but are you friends? Do, do you like the same movies? Do, do, do you want to be together? Do you want to spend time together? What's conversation like? Is it, is it free or is it forced? Do you, do you find it easy to be able to talk to this person? Do you, what, what, what about when you bring them home? Are they, are they awkward around your family? Do you think that your family is kind of appreciating them and enjoying them? What is this person like at a, at a, at a bar or with coffee shops? Like how, do, how does this person treat, you know, service workers and other people? How do they talk about past girlfriends or past boyfriends? How, how are they as a person? Like that is part of this conversation too. And, and the church recognizes this. And that's why even in the, in the program for priestly formation, um, John Paul II back in 1993 included a, a, an element of human formation into this dialogue, even when it comes to discerning seminary life. 
And so even seminarians have to attend to their humanity and making sure that the priest is a whole person and is somebody who um, has a healthy emotional life and healthy personality in as much as they have a well-formed spirituality too. Because the two aren't meant to be opposed to one another. They're meant to be, you know, in unison. So, yeah, I think that like we can we can gravitate towards an overly pious spiritualism um, that I think is is problematic. And uh, we have to kind of, again, keep these feet on the ground, operate, walk, be patient, allow the process to unfold a little bit and learn about ourselves um, as we continue to 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 grow and uh, and to date. You know, because that's the, that's ultimately what the process is going to do is that it's going to give us a lot of the self-awareness that you were speaking about. So maybe a, a good way we're, we're already diving in in a certain sense to what I called part two, right? The, yeah, the yeah, struggles, yeah. The, the wounds, the arguments, and we'll get more into that in a second. But I think to, to kind of put the wraps on this this first bit, um, one of the things about that that self-awareness that you talked about um, both in yourself, but also in, in, in your partner, um, is the question of uh, discerning where this relationship goes, including breaking up, <laughs> right? Um, you know, breaking up is not necessarily, you might conceive of it as a failure of the relationship. It might, in fact, be a success of discernment. You, yep. You're not necessarily called to marry every person you date. And so figuring out that this is not the person for me uh, is is actually a win, right? If, yep. if you've discerned yep. that accurately, what would be what would be some key indicators uh, in both directions that this this is a person to to deepen a relationship, to move to another stage, whether that's committing to, to an exclusive relationship as boyfriend and girlfriend, or engagement or marriage, uh, and then on the flip side, at, at the thing about any of those is none of them until marriage are a lifelong commitment, right? That's like correct. one of the reasons you have something like engagement instead of just getting married is you've still got options here, <laughs> right? And so, so yeah. what, what kind of, you know, flags or indicators or ideas would you point to as like, here's a good sign to move on to, to increase the intimacy, commitment and responsibility by moving to another stage, for example, and, and explicitly so, right? Like say what stage you're in yeah. uh, or uh, an indication that, you know, this isn't going to work out maybe for now or maybe for good. Yeah. So let's tackle this first with like the, at the beginning of a relationship. So you're, you're going on a couple dates with this person or, or maybe again, casual dating at the beginning is there's, you can date multiple people at the same time, you know, as long as things are just casual conversations are casual, just getting to know them. No problem. Go on dates, you know? That's fine. No, no big deal. But then you start going out with somebody and it's like, this person's easy to talk to, you know, like I, like, and this is a good person. I can see the way that they're, that they're treating, look at the way that they talk about uh, previous relationships. Look at the way that they talk about, like I said, you know, the, the service workers or people at restaurants or even the way that they talk about the Selms. Look at, look at the way that they're being chivalrous and respectful of me. Um, those are good signs. Those are signs that you say, okay, you know, like, I think I want to take this a step further and keep going. And then at some point, you know, as, as you continue on within the dating relationship, if you find that sense of rest, that sense of ease, that sense of connection that's present, the, the, the qualities of the person as you're seeing them, the time that they're giving you, um, all of those things, you say, okay, I think it's time for us to kind of move forward and, and, and become exclusive and take this next step. And I'm not going to be dating other people. You know, it's just going to be us and we're going to kind of keep moving. So then the converse would be, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're talking to somebody 
And let's say even in the first date, you go out for a cup of coffee and, and you have a conversation, it's an hour long or something like that, hour and a half, you go on a date for just a simple one. And of that 90 minutes that you're together, 80 of them, uh, the person is spent talking about themselves. You know, not somebody you want to go on a second date with. All right. Like that's just, that's just a red flag right there. You know, that's somebody you're like, okay, great. I'm glad you like to talk about yourself, but, uh, but we're, we're not going on another date. Right. Because, because that's probably somebody who's tending with the, you know, contending with a little narcissism or something of that nature. Um, or similarly, like if, if they are not respectful of you, um, clearly, obviously, if, if they're crossing physical bounds, you, you don't want to go on a, in a, sec, in a second date. But even in those early stages, if you're finding that you're you're not feeling comfortable, you're not feeling safe, uh, you're you're not feeling respected, um, those are all red flags. But even if in, because that's one piece. The second piece is that let's say you you start broaching into some conversations that maybe not on the first date, but second or third date, you start getting into a little bit of political or religious conversations, and things start coming up that you're like, mm, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Okay. That's not necessarily a deal breaker, but it's how you deal with it. If it, if it leads to them kind of quieting you down or shutting you up, so to speak, and, 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 and not giving you your say or your ability to be able to say something about whatever the difference is. Again, similar, somebody you probably don't want to keep, keep dating because if you don't feel like you can be respected, even in those areas of differences, um, then, then that's certainly uh, problematic. But again, the converse is there, that if you even have areas of disagreement, but you're talking and sharing and there's some respect and, 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 and a willingness to dialogue and to learn from one another about those differences, then I think those are certainly good signs to, to, to be looking for. So I reiterate, that's why so much of this is a process of the interior, because I think it's, it, there is a subjectivity to it. And, but what, what keeps us grounded is, um, is really like processing it with others. So uh, taking it to prayer, but then even being able to talk to about it with our friends and people who are genuine friends, real friends of us will, will, will challenge us. They'll love us, but they'll challenge us. They'll say, you know, hey, like I've noticed that you're wearing different clothes uh, than what you normally wear. Like, you know, there's something about this person that, you know, yeah, I can see there's there's changes that are happening in you that things I, I never thought you were into or interested in. Why are you starting to do that? You know, those type of things like, oh, man, no, it's going to be OK. It's going to be OK. But but those things you want to be a little cautious or you might be, like I said earlier, might be losing yourself too much in in, in the relationship. Um, but it could be, again, this is where it's hard. It could be that maybe there's a newfound interest, like you like to rock climb. And you're like, well, I didn't even know I like rock climbing, but now I freaking love it. You know, we're playing golf. It's like, man, I didn't know I like playing golf. But now we've gone on a couple of dates, we played golf. I think it's awesome, you know? So so there is, of course, just this this balance. Um, but you can, if you're honest with yourself, you, you can kind of see that. And you can kind of recognize that like, okay, like we're gonna be different people, that's fine. Um, but there's real genuine respect that's present between us, which is awesome. And if that's the case, then, then you want to take it the next step. So then when you start getting into a more serious relationship, the question becomes, OK, well, when do you start talking about things in the past and have a whole lesson, you know, when to talk about what? And, and, and so you gradually start revealing those things. And it's not like in one fail swoop, you just lay it all out there. Maybe you just give a little bit. And then a couple months later, you give a little bit more. And so when you share about yourself, how is that reciprocated? Is it is it met with with judgment and criticism or a kind of fear that like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you did that type of thing? Or is it met with genuine empathy and concern and, and then a reciprocation of that, you know, in saying, OK, well, then, man, thank you so much for sharing. I'm going I'm to I, I'm share a little bit more about my experiences also. 
And then how do you respond to what they said about their past? Do you meet that with empathy and compassion or do you meet that with judgment and criticism as well? And so like you want to be cautious within yourself in terms of what your own experiences as you're having these discussions. But then if that happens and it happens naturally and organically and there's trust and, and, and vulnerability and it doesn't and it seems like, wow, those conversations go well, then you keep going and you keep having those discussions um, and you keep talking and sharing and, and, and just trying to enjoy, um, you know, life with one another. And if all of that goes well, then, you know, I think you just continue to do that until it becomes clear that there's certainly a time to to, uh, you know, to move forward towards engagement. But with regards to breaking up, I can share a little bit more about that, or, or we can we can leave that for for later. And I just feel like I've been talking for a lot, so I'll stop. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I'll, I'll share a little story. Please. Just uh, yeah. uh, maybe a couple. Well, two two ideas. One, the the talking about yourself too much strikes me as is really interesting, right? Um, you know, if there are narcissistic tendencies, you want to get out soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would also say something like, um, what's the word? A, a kind of patience with other people's imperfections. One of the things about a first date is that people are nervous as heck. Yeah, yeah. And a person might be talking about themselves not because they're a narcissist, but because they're afraid they're of nervous. silence and they don't know what to do. Yeah. And I think if if you like the person and you think like, okay, they're, they're talking too much about themselves, but I'm not picking up the narcissist vibe. Mm -hmm. I'm picking up the nervous vibe. Yep, um, yep. You know what? You you can help a person through that, mm -hmm. right? By 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 asking questions. By the way, the the best way to avoid doing it yourself is to just ask questions of the other person. Correct. <laughs> and, Correct. Right. Yeah. So that I mean, at yeah. first date, you know, one hundred and one is just like ask lots of good questions. Ask and, lots of good questions. Right. Yeah. Um, but but uh, but to free someone up from that that need to fill the space, you can step in and, and help them with that. So just that, that's one one yep. thought Agreed. that popped into my head. Well, because even nervousness, I'm sorry, like there, there's some research that supports that, that the notion of nervousness is actually attractive because you're you're trying hard to like not show that you're deeply like you're really attracted, but you're nervous because you're attracted. Like that's right. that's that's why you're nervous. You're nervous because you're attracted to the other person. And so if you pick up on that, it's kind of like, okay, like that's, like you said, you can help the other person out and, and, and take it as a compliment. You know, back it's, when we were talking about- It's different from the person who's attracted to themselves. Yeah, exactly. Which is what that's narcissists, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's a, that's a great distinction. Right. So even when it comes to the flirting thing, like, like it's, 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 it's not, if it, if you're not good at it, then don't do it. But but if there's a, if it's part of who you are in terms of being playful and joking and jovial, then then bring that to to the relationship. Like that's who you are, and bring that to it. Not to not to be like seductive or overly sexual. And, and that's not what I, when I talk about being flirty, I'm not I'm not speaking it in that context. I think that's inappropriate. But I think in terms of just being able to be playful, playful banter, uh, things like that, I think are 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 not the, the end all be all in a relationship, like in movies, you know, that's how it always is. It's like, oh, they can flirt well together and they have playful banter. And, and, all, and the next scene, you know, they're in the bed together. You know, that's what it is. It's like, that's what I'm saying. But if it's part of who you are as a person, then bring that to the table. Um, show that, reveal that, you know, of, of yourself. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But let you get, get and and this, the second, I just want to share a, a personal mm -hmm. story. I got, you know, I've 
the temptation is to just share personal stories the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but fine. here's one I'm sure I'm sure my wife is comfortable with that she she would be <laughs> she would she would tell herself. And it comes up because you you mentioned this idea of you know you're wearing different clothes now that you're with this person, and you know I can see oh yeah there could be there could be um, expectations from another person about how you dress that could be an indication of something unhealthy right right and right. and related to that i thought one one red flag you know that your friends and family pick up on before you do is when you start making excuses for the other person yeah often yeah, yeah. That's, that's the great. beginning that's of that great. codependent relationship yeah, right that's great. That's um great. so if you find yourself making excuses for them uh that's a time to ask some real real questions you know um but but on this clothing thing, so one thing that happened when when I was dating Flannery is we went to um, Winner. This was like a discount. I don't know if you have them in mm -hmm. Louisiana, but it's it's a discount clothing place mm -hmm. or whatever. And got her a, a pair of jeans that were basically fashionable at the time. <laughs> and this was this was actually a major thing for her because clothing for her in her family of origin had been a way to hide from the world. Hmm. And so um, it, she, 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 you know, when we were first married, we, we watched a what not to wear, which is a funny show, you know, on yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what TLC right. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny, quirky, you know, interesting hosts have interesting personalities. I never would have guessed that my wife would be really interested in that because mm -hmm because she wasn't a person who, when I met her, put a ton of emphasis on what she wore. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, that was actually, that was a, a difficulty for her is that clothing was a place to hide from the world. Mm. And so to, to buy a fashionable pair of jeans uh, was like a major step for her into sort of owning her, her own personality and presentation. Yes. Uh, and, and I know lots of women, I mean, this is, this is a fine line and I, I'm sure it happens yep. to men too, but lots of women have to really discern between is, is this about sort of figuring out who I am and presenting myself in a way that I'm comfortable with and growing in confidence, or is this about putting on a show? And, and that, that's a, that's a careful discernment, but I, but I would have been inclined to, you know, I don't know what overly modest kind of dress just to avoid the temptation of, of putting on a show and doing things inappropriately in, in a certain sense. Um, but, but I was not as keenly aware of the opposite danger of, mm. of losing yourself and hiding behind your clothes and not being confident and, and being able to be out there. And so anyway, I just, I just share yeah, that. No, it's a great, thank you for sharing that. It's an, it's an important distinction here because it's, it's, it's exactly that piece. Like in a, in a healthy relationship, you should see inner transformations, little transformations that happen along the way where you help each other kind of grow. And so the example that you gave of buying her a pair of fashionable jeans wasn't to disregard or suppress her uh, previous fashion choices or to get her to change. It was rather calling out and sitting like in a gentle way of being like, listen, like it's okay. You can, you can, you could, this is an option for you now. Like you can wear something fashionable and be modest and be stylist. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean anything other than that. And so, so her embracing that gave her freedom and gave her perspective to say, wow, look, look at the way, look at what my relationship with clothes have been up to this point. Like that's exactly the type of stuff that you want to be looking at in a relationship. And if you're seeing that type of growth happening, 
then I think those are thumbs up. The opposite would be the case where it's like, where something like clothing uh, would be used as a, as a way to, to, to suppress or to disregard or to, to make a change, you know, on, in somebody. And, and that would be the place where I would say that, that that's, that's not it, but because you're becoming less of yourself. But right. in the scenario that you just gave, it was the exact opposite, where it was like, here's a gift given to this other, to, to my girlfriend, and look at the conversation, look at what it opened up, and look at, look at the realization that came because of it. And those are healthy realizations for her to, to recognize, healthy conversations and things to have, you know, and understandings inside of herself. So thank you so much for sharing that, it's really beautiful. You know, I had never thought of the example in those terms until we're, we're having this conversation, but looking back, it was, it, it was actually a pretty serious step for us as yes. a couple was buying yes. that pair of jeans, which is yes. which is really interesting. Um, and and I, so as as we as we kind of I'm just amazed up, that you bought her the pair of jeans. I just want you to know that. I mean, like that's <laughs> guts, that's a gutsy play, man. You know, like <laughs> like as well, a, we we as went a to whole. the store and tried them on together. Yeah, and there she you was, go. Okay, she was super great, shy great. about trying yeah. them on, and yeah. I was like, like they look really nice, yes. you know. Yes. And yes. then after she had them for a week, I mean, she. she they were her favorite jeans of all time, I bet. you know? Oh, I um, bet. That's awesome. Great maybe story. a wrap for part one, and then we'll move into part two, is is to build on this, this idea that the jeans were one example, but it, it showed up at several points in your course. And it, it, to me, it, it, it's it's really about the, the virtue of prudence, which is sometimes certain hard and fast rules um, don't work. They don't capture the complexity of, of the human situation. And so, uh, you know, a rule like, um, you know, encouraging someone to wear certain kinds of clothing is always a bad sign or always a good sign. Mm -hmm. It abstracts from so much context and human mm -hmm. relationship that it's, that it's unworkable. And all it does is set up people for shame and failure. Mm -hmm. um, but over and over in your course, and, and one, one that stood out for me, and we're going to have to have a separate episode on this because the question is far too complex. But one that stood out for me was the question of, you know, if the person I'm dating is struggling with pornography, uh, should I should I get out? Is that like an absolute hard line, never, no, go away right now kind of thing? And instead, you introduced a series of questions for discernment about like, am I feeling objectified? Am I seeing any progress? Is this person able to be honest with me? All, all those kinds of things. And, and you said, uh, you know, in your practice, you've seen cases where, where the drive to, to um, improve oneself, to be a better partner to the person in the relationship is exactly what the person needed for recovery and healing in that area of their lives. Mm -hmm. And other cases where being single was exactly what the person needed to be able to focus on their recovery and healing. And I just, I think that that's, that's the virtue of prudence that it, it, sometimes there are hard and fast rules, but there are a lot more cases where there's so much context that you have to do the deep discernment and, and the vast majority of what goes on in dating is, is the second half, right? Mm -hmm. There's a couple of hard lines, like never do this. Okay. Right. Yeah. If someone, if someone don't have sex before marriage, don't have sex before marriage, like there's don't abuse the person. Obviously there's, yes. there's a handful of, of mm -hmm. clear ones, but the vast majority mm -hmm. is in this other area where it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. You, you need to think this through. And, and I, the hard line when we apply hard lines where there aren't hard lines yep we set people up to fail agreed uh, and agreed. and we equip it's terrible equipping for marriage if we don't learn to exercise the virtue of prudence in dating 
because we're committed to certain hard lines where they don't really apply. We lose the opportunity to build the skills we actually need to have a successful marriage in the first place. So, that's so right. I, I would say to, to, to the listeners, you know, that's one of the reasons I can recommend this course is because I found you, you hit that balance just right. If, if you want to share some last thoughts on that, maybe that's the end. of Yeah. I mean, well, because, because it's all set up for that. I mean, like, it's not like you get married and all of a sudden like discernment's over. I mean, like discernment's just begun really, because now you have to discern a thousand things. We, when are we going to have kids? Who's going to go to graduate school? What job are we going to take? We move across the country for this one or this one. And then I find it, it gets harder when you have more kids because there's more variables. Who's, who's, Whose sports are we going to invest in, you know, versus who's who's not? Who who what school are we going to put them in? Are we going to put them all in the same school or not? I mean, like the sermon in the process of making decisions continues even into marriage. And so if you can develop some type of um, framework and understanding of how you guys operate as a unit, that's what's going to set you up for success. And so, yeah, absolutely. Are there hard and fast lines of 100 percent? Yeah, there are certain things. Look at the Ten Commandments. There's your list. Don't do any of that when you're dating. Okay. Like we can keep to that. Great. The rest of it, like there's a, there's, there's, we have to, we do have to recognize that every person is an individual and every person is different. And so every relationship is going to be unique. John Paul II says this in the theology of the body, right? Everybody's made unique and unique and unrepeatable is what he says. And so that frame, that framing is important for us because then every relationship is going to be unique and unrepeatable. We're not, we're not cars coming off an assembly line, you know, each made exactly the same, maybe with a little different paint of color or whatever it is, or different, you know, access to the stereo. Like, like we're all entirely unique and unrepeatable. And so even when we meet people, the time that we meet people is important also. That's all part of the discernment process. Who I was at 17 is not who I am right now at 41. Who I was at 17 or 16 in high school wasn't who I was at 22 when we got married. I mean, like even in those six years, I changed dramatically. And if I would have met Kristen in high school, we wouldn't have a relationship would not have worked. But because we met in college and we both had gone through certain changes, you know, throughout the, the latter part of our high school years and early years of college, that we were ready when we met each other. And so all of that is context, which is why I reiterate having a healthy prayer life to know and understand how the Lord communicates and speaks to you so that you can be ready to act and respond when he asks you to act and respond. That's the virtue of prudence. The virtue of prudence is knowing it's time to engage. And sometimes it means I have to wait. Unfortunately, prudence gets a bad rap when we talk, when we just call people a prude or we use it in, in that negative context, because often it can take the it can take the form of waiting or having to understand, but often, but it is that, but it also takes the form of it's time to engage. It's time, it's time to, to do what the Lord has asked us to do. And if the Lord's saying, go, then go, then, then at that point, you don't need the virtue of prudence. You need the virtue of fortitude and courage, you know, to cultivate that when it's time to kind of keep moving forward. So this is why there's 19 lessons. And this is why like the backbone, the backbone of the course isn't even so much what I'm saying, but, but, but trying to get people to reflect and to pray and to ask themselves these questions and to be honest with themselves um, so that they can come to a better understanding of how God operates in their life and they can come to a better understanding of what it is that they are experiencing in the context of the relationship so that they can have confidence to be able to move forward um, with whatever the direction that they feel they're supposed to move forward, whether that's continuing the relationship or that means breaking it up. So that's what we're talking about. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's, let's, uh, 
take a pause so that Deacon Eric uh, knows where to edit this thing. And uh, it is totally you, unprofessional to, to let the audience in behind the curtain here. But uh, <laughs> we're going to just do a pause and then we're going to start episode two. I'm taking a quick break here from my conversation with Dr. Brett Sockold, and this is actually the end of the first part, and we're taking a break, and we're going to jump right into part two, which I said earlier was actually, you know, two parts on their podcast, Thinking Faith, but I'm putting it together as just one for you here on the Always So podcast, so you can listen to it. Again, that's what the pause button is for. You can come back to it if you're enjoying the conversation. But if you're interested in purchasing Dating Well, the program that I put together to help young adults navigate the dating scene, get 19 video lessons together with reflection questions and exercises to help you better understand what to do and when to do it, so to speak. That didn't come out right. But anyways, you know, when to talk about what and how to have these conversations and how to even look at dating as a process of discernment. If any of this is of interest to you, please check out Dating Well. It's a program there available for you. Go out to, go to faithandmarriage.org to check it out. Well, welcome back, listeners. It's been a week for you. It's been 11 and a half seconds uh, for us. <laughs> um but yes, it uh, has been. <laughs> yeah. Thanks guys but, for coming back. We appreciate you. <laughs> um, but uh, we want to talk in this, this second episode with uh, Dr. Mario Sacasa uh, about um, some, of, some of the, and we got into this a little bit in the first episode, but we're talking yeah. about his course dating well. And, and we want to look a little more at some of the harder things uh, that, uh, that maybe I, I feel like I could have used more formation on when I was discerning marriage and something I'd want to talk about my own kids with. Uh, things about woundedness, arguments, uh, differences between couples, um, you know, the, the, the heavy stuff that sometimes, you know, we, we talked in, in the first episode about overly pious approaches mm -hmm. to relationships and, and, and marriage preparation and that kind of thing that just assumes that if, if you're well-intentioned, good, faithful Catholics, you know, this stuff will take care of itself and, and it won't. Uh, right. Like you're going to marry a sinner. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you don't know have right. If, if you and, marry, and, you someone, know, here's the surprise. Uh, you, your your spouse is marrying a sinner. Your, too. your spouse is going <laughs> to marry one too. And I mean, the, the fascinating thing really is, we we often pick people whose um, whose own patterns of sin and woundedness intersect with our own in a way that forces us to either heal or or give up. Like there, there's actually, you, you often have, you, you can only look the other way for so long, whether it's at, at their problems or yours, like you, you, you will be forced to engage. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. The way we pick partners yep. or the way the Holy spirit picks partners, if you want to put it in those terms, sure, um, sure. who will force us to deal with our stuff. Yep. Um, so I, I, I thought maybe a good place to start this episode is, I had a little caveat with with a phrase you used. I agree. I yeah, agree right. with something that you're saying, uh, but I thought it might be worth a bit of a discussion. Um, sure. In your course, you take on this uh, this cliche, you know, opposites attract. Yeah. And and you said no, no, they don't. <laughs> um, so w why don't you tell us why you say no, no, they don't, and then then I'll put you know a, a critical question or two or or some thoughts to that. It 
Yeah, sure. So so we'll put nuance to it. Sure. You know, it, it maybe be a little provocative. That's why I said. That's why I said it. You know, why okay. not? So so let's let's put it out there. No, I mean the, the opposites attract. I mean, I if we're too different, if we're really two different people, not just in the number, but but like in the in, but like in the you know the superlative. If we're if we're generally just too different, um, the relationship isn't going to work. Like there has to be a certain level of compatibility. But similarly, if we're just too similar to or we're exactly the same. The relationship isn't going to work either because we're just going to be well we're going to be bored but but we're never really going to learn or grow and that relationship isn't going to force us to to grow so the people that we are often attracted to the people that we often date are people who are different than us certainly um but i wouldn't i wouldn't go so far as to say that they are the exact opposite of us um, because the exact opposite of me would probably um I, I don't think i'd be attracted to that person but somebody who's who like you said um has differences, personality differences that make up what I am lacking. Well, yeah, that's the type of person that I want to be with. And that's the person that I married. I married somebody who temperamentally is, is, is different than me. I'm sanguine choleric. Um, and my wife is phlegmatic, you know? And so if we look at the four temperaments in, in that regard, I'm extroverted. She's introverted. I'm the spender. She's the saver. Um, I'm the one who wants to take the bull by the horns and, and get the job done. She's the one who wants to, you know, uh, take her time, make a decision, assess, get as many options as possible before she feels comfortable making a decision. And what I've learned over the years is 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 to trust that, is to look at that and to say, well, rather than this being some a source of, of consternation or source of, of frustration, what I've learned over the years is that what she's been given is a different skill set and a different tool set to be able to gather data. And so the way that she gathers data is different than the way that I gather data. And if we're trying to make a decision together about something, whatever it is, then the way she gathers data and the way I gather data, we have two different perspectives. And so we can compare notes, so to speak. And if we can compare notes, well, then if we're operating out of a place of trust, then we can look at that and say, all right, well, then let's 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 move forward with this decision together. Now, not every decision, of course, is going to be mutual or mutually beneficial. Obviously, sometimes I have to go see the movie that she wants to watch, not that she watches movies, but you know, that's an example that's often given, or go to the restaurant that she wants to go to may not be my first option, but hey, that's okay. But then what, what, what really happens is that you learn, and this is, this is really when you're, when you, when you, when you're cooking with grease or whatever, you know, duck dynasty, whatever he says, you're cooking with gas, you know, <laughs> like in, in marriage is that when you, when you learn the circumstances that each other's temperament shines. And so there are clearly moments when I need to take a step back and I need to say, Kristen, whatever process that you're working through fits better within this decision. And I'm going to submit to that. And then there are other moments where my way of thinking or my process is, is much better situated for, for this circumstance. And so we're going to operate. I have to take the lead on this. And that's where it becomes mutually beneficial. That's not always that you're, you know, kind of lockstep. Sometimes one has to take the lead. Sometimes the other has to take a lead. Sometimes you're lockstep. Sometimes you're mutually kind of discerning and making a decision together. But you're always trying to operate as a team. And so that's why I don't say opposites attract. I think extremes don't attract one another. But I do think that you will be attracted to somebody who compliments and who does think differently than you. Now, of course, the, the challenge with that is because they do think differently than you, they're going to behave and operate differently than you. And they're going to do things differently than you. And, uh, and, and if that annoys you, well, then, you know, you're going to have a miserable marriage <laughs> because, right. because you're going to be with them for the rest of your life. And, uh, and so, yeah, that, those, those are, those are the things that I'm, that, that, that I'm speaking about. So, but yeah, tell me what your bone is. Your yeah. Bone. Well, well, I mean, <laughs> you got to a lot of it, but 
you know, I read somewhere like cultural cliches, you know, folk wisdom that's encapsulated in really tight little phrases like opposites attract. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that it's saying something true and that it's saying something that if you extend it to its logical conclusion is not true. You know, and the example Correct. in this thing I read was like, okay, you can say nothing ventured, nothing gained. And we right. know that there's something true there. And right. then you can also say uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, uh, which is like saying the opposite of nothing right. ventured, nothing gained, right? Because there are times <laughs> when it's time to take the risk, which is what one of those phrases is pointing to. And there are other times when it's like, be satisfied with what you got. Don't right. don't push your luck, right? And there, there's times when each apply. And I so I think you know yep. that yep. that helps me think about these these phrases of of folk wisdom. It's like okay. yeah, it's saying something true, but it's not pretending to be, you know, all encompassing, right? Co correct, correct. Um, so so when correct. I when I saw the part in your in your course where you said opposites don't attract and then you gave some examples of things that don't attract before you got into this complementary stuff that you just talked about it struck me that where opposites don't attract is on questions of values mm -hmm. right so i'm thinking like my wife and i are very different like mm -hmm. like very very different um but one of the things where where we like sync up almost perfectly is on our values around parenting yeah and we knew that when we were discerning dating that we had the same attitude towards uh children towards raising children we came from very different homes in terms of of you know how discipline and and relations between parent and child but we both came from those homes with the same attitudes uh, partly out of, you know, rejection of some of the attitudes and some of the things that happened in our own lives. Um, that we're like, in terms of questions around parenting, we are so in sync, uh, around other things. We're, we're very different. And those are more not values, but personality. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that opposites attract deserves a strong rejection. If we're talking about values, um, yeah. Not that you can have no shade of difference, but I mean, there's certain there's certain lines there, right? But in terms of personality, uh, that's a different kind of question, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, I don't need to repeat it because you did such a great job at the beginning of describing how different personalities can really complement one another, mm -hmm. uh, and and I think that's what the folk wisdom is getting at with with the opposites attract you you mentioned it in as a as a resource in one of after one of the first lessons a book by sue johnson called love sense yep mm -hmm. i would strongly recommend this Yay. book anyone right. Got my attachment by the way she's going there yeah attachment she's up there she's canada she's right there she's yeah. a canadian she is and and i'm gonna all I'm my gonna... favorite psychologists are canadians you know her jordan peterson <laughs> you know like <laughs> Kate Bowler is not a psychologist, but she's at, at Duke. Uh, even Malcolm Gladwell. I got great love for Canadians. Okay. Yeah, well, Canadians <laughs> making their contribution. So if you haven't heard of Sue Johnson, I, I'm going to be vulnerable here right now and say her other book, Hold Me Hold Tight, me tight. Uh, probably saved my marriage. Yeah, praise the Lord. Praise uh, it, it, it's, it's an incredible book. And one of the things I learned from that book is the way in which many opposites do attract. There are seekers and sort of retreaters. Mm -hmm. 
And um, when two seekers get together, they rarely end up married because there's too much intensity. Uh, Or pursuers is another word. Pursuers. Yeah, pursuers. Yeah, and and is there another word for retreater that I should be using? Uh, Withdrawer, withdrawer. There it is. Pursuers. And two withdrawers almost never get together at all. Yeah, because uh, they're, they're too, they're too no, one's, no one's providing the, <laughs> no the energy and the impetus to get something going, right? So that's something it. like 80 plus percent of long-term relationships include a pursuer and a withdrawer. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's, it's the easiest thing in the world, if you're the pursuer, to think that withdrawers are terrible people who shouldn't ever do that. <laughs> And, and if you're a withdrawer, it's the easiest thing in the world to imagine that pursuers are terrible people and no one should ever do that. That's right. That's right. right. And leave me alone. Stop bothering me. (laughs) And what happens, of course, of course, of course, of course, is when a pursuer with pursues a withdrawer withdraws, Yep. which leads to what a pursuer pursuing harder, which leads to what a withdrawer withdrawing harder. And both of those personality types need to learn to recognize that situation. And a withdrawer needs to learn how to come out of him or herself. Mm-hmm. And a pursuer needs to learn how to dial it back a little bit. Yep. And that is bloody hard work. You got it. It is. It is <laughs> it, and it's, it's not a question of sinfulness. I mean, it may be, it may be interconnected with your own sins and faults, but in and of itself, being the pursuer or the withdrawer is not a question of sin. It's a question of difference in personality. Mm-hmm. And, right. and so, so instead of framing it as this other person has this terrible vice uh, to understand that people are different and that that's actually, that's actually the, the circumstance God is going to use to make you holier yep. is, yep. is withdraw. Right. You're going to need to come out of yourself and pursue You're going to need to learn to dial it back. You got I, it. That insight expanded over what 270 pages basically saved my marriage well praise uh, the lord and praise and lord. so and i didn't i didn't know a thing about that but i do yeah. know that it's the easiest thing in the world to think that the problem is that the other person has some terrible vice yeah and what she does in that book that i love some there's a lot of things i love about the book it's it's one of it you know it's it's the resource it's the theory that i use her emotionally focused couple therapy is what i use in my counseling practice uh, because i think attachment theory lends itself very beautifully to a Catholic perspective and a Catholic lens of the world, Amen. Which, puts, which puts relationships at the center, um, not the individual. And so she says in, in that book also, when you start talking about that dance, you know, that's the word that she uses, this pattern. She uses dance, but it's a, a pattern that couples can fall into. What she does so beautifully is that she says that the pattern is the problem, not the person. And so when you become aware of what the dance is that you're falling into, Someone's got to be the grown up and say, hey, we got to stop. We got to reassess kind of what's happening here. I know that if I'm the pursuer, I'm trying too hard. I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. That means the pursuer has to stop pushing, stop pursuing a little bit and back off a little bit. It's kind of what I was talking about earlier with being over responsible. Sometimes you need to back off a little bit because you got to give room for the withdrawer to engage. And so then the withdrawer has to has to be has to, you know, put their pants on, put their big boy pants up and, and, and engage within what the problem is and not just trying to avoid also. And so, um, but recognizing that there's, there's the dance is the problem. It's the pattern that you've fallen into that becomes the problem, which is why so much of what I talk about in dating well is so important because you're talking about setting up good habits for, for your long-term success in marriage. You set those habits up while you're dating. 
Like those habits are formed while you're dating and you bring that into marriage. It's not like all of a sudden the, the grace of ordination, this is one of these over spiritual, you know, spiritualized concepts that we say, well, the grace of the sacrament, you know, is just going to be enough to transform the pattern that you formed. That's not the way it works. Grace builds on nature. And so whatever the nature is that you've, that you've developed, like that's what you're going to bring into your sacramental union. And so that's why, it, again, it's not perfect. I'm not saying you can be perfect when you're, when you're dating. You're not going to be perfect when you get married. No, of course not. But you at least want to start seeing fruits of that or at least developing that you've at least recognize that you've developed some healthy forms of interaction. And, right. uh, and those are the patterns that you're at least going to start with in your marriage. Now, is that a deal breaker? Does that mean that your marriage, if you start off on the wrong foot, that you're not going to be able to fix it? Of course not. That's why resources like this you know, are so important or marriage counseling, finding a good marriage therapist in your area to be able to help you understand what those patterns are um, and to be able to help you navigate them so that you can grow and be and be better, you know. Right. So, so happy you brought up Hold Me Tight. It's a great book. She's a great author. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so and, I, and I would say, you know what you said, like, if you don't get this, can you not get married? Well, <laughs> then I shouldn't have got married. But yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, but it's, it's been hard, but I'll, I'll tell you, like, I, I wrote the, the book I wrote about the physical intimacy and I'm not going to, you know, stand here and say, we, we never did things that we didn't plan to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. I, I don't, right. I actually haven't met people like that. Um, right. But, but basically we, basically we, we've adhered to our own principles. We mm -hmm. set out clear expectations. We followed them. And, and that was, that was good preparation for marriage mm -hmm. by and large. Yeah. But we were utterly clueless on this question of, of uh, pursuing and withdrawing. Mm -hmm. And if, if we had any sense at all uh, about it, we could have recognized the pattern already as a dating couple, but we didn't. And nobody along the way suggested that was a thing to know about or, yeah. or to, to explore. And so we spent a good dozen years each thinking that there was something fundamentally wrong with the other person. And, and, and that builds resentment. It sure does. Yeah. And it breaks it down trust. And that takes an immense amount of time and goodwill and energy to, to heal. And it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and so I, I'm, I'm passionate about this. You can hear it in my voice yeah. because if, if someone could have told us, in uh, before we were married in the first few years of marriage you know we're learning things now uh about and there was a great line in your course i don't remember which module and it was just it was it was one item in a list you know that you didn't explore but i i'd ask you to explore it here and maybe you explored it more in another module because i didn't watch them all um but you you talked about um Self, you were talking about self-awareness and, and questions you would ask yourself it, relatively early in a dating relationship. Um, and it was something like, do I have expectations that are building resentments? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so to just, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to speak to that because I think that's so important, but just to tie it into our own, uh, you know, personal history, you know, Flannery and I, we had expectations about what, what a good spouse should do and 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 here's the thing you're, you're you're the good faithful catholics yep you want to be good spouses you think you have the same values and 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 in in, in a way you do mm -hmm. um but then this other person behaves in a way that doesn't look like 
mm-hmm. your values or what or what you, th- you you don't you can't see how it accords with your values so mm-hmm. it just it just looks like someone doing something that's that's wrong and destructive yep. and both of you feel that way about the other but you don't understand the pattern mm-hmm. so so expectations mm-hmm. unmet mm-hmm. Uh, unrealistic expectations that don't map onto how people actually work uh, unmet lead to resentment, yep. uh, that, that takes a lot of work to heal. Right. So I, I love that phrase of yours, even early on in dating, are, are you cultivating expectations that lead to resentment? You know, your ex- being aware of your expectations partly is saying like, here's, here's, you know, some things I want in a potential partner. Yeah. Um, but part of it is, so what do my expectations say about me? Right. 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 <laughs> right? right. And I, I really appreciate that element of, of the course. Yeah. No, again, I appreciate you really sharing, you know, sharing this because it's not whether someone's a, a pursuer withdrawal, those aren't, those aren't moral questions. And this is what we were saying earlier in terms of values. Like they're, they're not moral judgments. And, and often we, we, when we get frustrated enough, we, we, when we get resentful enough, we turn it into a moral question because now you're doing it deliberately to tick me off. Like you, I've, I've said X to you a thousand times and now you're just doing it to really, you know, get under my skin. And so you're doing it deliberately. So we cast that type of judgment and we make it a moral question when it's not meant to be it, it going back to that notion of differences and personality differences and temperamental differences that your wife is just going to operate and see the world in different space. And listen, I'll, I'll share this. I think I shared the story in, in one of the modules, and and it, this is a true story that I, I was in. I was giving a marriage retreat um, a couple years ago, and we were walking back from from the Abbey Church where we do our retreat center, where our retreat center is at, and it's like a half a block, you know, from the from the church back to the retreat center. I was walking with a couple of the couples, and and one of the women, you know, turned to me and said, "Hey, you know, Dr. Mario, um, what's the one thing you learned in marriage?" You know, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like the one thing, what am I supposed to say? You know, like I have a doctorate, I have all this other, you know, experience with like one thing. And what came out of my mouth was my wife is a different person. That's the one thing I've learned in marriage, (laughs) like like that my wife is fundamentally a different person. And and we have to understand that that because it doesn't mean that the way that she folds her laundry is 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 an immoral act. Or the fact that she squeezes the toothpaste, you know, from the middle, or she puts the toilet paper, you know, going the wrong way, that those are like character defects on her. You know, that's not what it is. It's just, again, as I said earlier, that the way that she moves in space and time is fundamentally different than the way that I move in space and time. And so we want to understand that and we want to grow with that. But like you said, if you're not aware that that's it, or if you have this expectation that a wife is supposed to do X or a husband is supposed to be Y, and you go into it with that expectation, well, then your spouse, the reality of the person who's in front of you is never going to meet that expectation. And if you're sometimes you're not even aware of what the expectation is, then it requires some, an insight like you talked about where you, where you read a book or you listen to podcasts or something of that nature that gives you the insight to say, oh, that's what I've been doing this whole time. Okay, well, I'm grateful that I know it now. You know, 12 years, praise God that you guys got that figured out, you know, 12 years into your marriage. It could have been 25 years. I mean, it could have been a lot longer. And then it would have been another decade plus of resentment, which then just makes things even more difficult, like you said. Um, so certainly being aware of what those expectations are. And then, and again, it doesn't mean that you can't have a checklist or, 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 or certain things that you're looking for, certain expectations in that regard. 
But when, when you level too much on another person, um, then, and that person doesn't, the person, the, no person is going to fulfill every single one of those things. And so in, in that case, that's what leads to resentment. And when it leads to resentment and you can't speak it, you can't communicate it because there isn't trust. You can't bring up the times you've been hurt or, or try to come to some understanding after an argument. Um, when you can't do those things, um, then, then that's when the relationship becomes difficult. And when that becomes the pattern or that becomes the norm in the relationship, well, that's when the relationship is heading into a, into a bad place. Right, right. So we, we've made a, a careful distinction, I think that's so important, that says these different ways of engaging are not sinful, right? They're just different ways of being in the world. Now, I um, would like the 11th commandment to be that that toothpaste has to be squeezed from the bottom. I mean, like that would make that would that would make my life easier. Right, right. Uh, but so in the so here's where I want to go next because we said at the you're going to marry a sinner, and so yep. is your spouse, right? So is your spouse. Uh, and it's so it's but it's so important to distinguish what where are we dealing with sin and where are we dealing with healthy difference mm-hmm. that that might camouflage itself as sin because of our own history and perception right Right. that's that's such an important distinction but now let's say um okay we're married to sinners and so is our spouse and so we're going to hurt each other not only through coincidence of uh you know family background and personality Mm -hmm. or whatever that leads to to confusion and resentment but actually because we do things that are wrong yep um and 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 those get entangled in in ways that are difficult to parse yep. with the with the other things that aren't sin yeah and and so I, I'll, I'll give you an example um oh should i give i was going to give an example of my wife but that's not well, fair so i have to give fair. an example of me yeah i have an example of me if you want me to <laughs> yeah. share do you, yeah go ahead what I, I do i do so this is this is something that we navigated early on in our marriage and it probably was probably we've been married like i said almost 20 years now and so early on probably like 10 or 12 years same point that you're speaking about i used to get so angry when the kids would leave a cup out on the table like that type of disorder would just grate at me and so it, like the fact that it bothered me in and of itself isn't sinful where it became sinful is when i'm barking at them like that's when it became sinful and I'm barking at them, not just in a way that is constructive, but the where I'm demeaning them or when I'm leveling that judgment against my wife and accusing her of being messy or sloppy or, or any sort of judgment of that nature. That's, that's when it becomes sinful. That's when it becomes the sin of the sin of wrath, because now, now you're not offering criticism that is uh, discipline in the real sense of the word, that it encourages construction, con- constructive feedback or, or, or a growth mindset. Um, you're only leveling it because you're, you are angry and you're, and you're discharging your anger and blaming simply because, uh, you just got upset by something that didn't quite go your way. So what I had to do interiorly, and this is kind of where the two kind of meet is, is that I had to, um, start asking myself, well, what is it about that darn cup that makes me so upset? Like what's going on in my life? Like, why am I getting so angry about that cup? And so as I asked that question and met that question with a sense of curiosity, I started kind of going down the, the emotional constellation, the, the little rabbit hole in my own heart and try to understand, well, what's going on? So what I realized is that the days that I got more upset about the cup were the days that I was more exhausted. Well, why was I more exhausted? Well, because I'm the type of person that I, I, I always overdo it, you know, just about every aspect of my life. And then, and then I get to the breaking point and then I crash. And that's a failure of discipline on my, on, on my sets. 
So what I realized is I'm the type of person that if you give me a hundred things to do, I will do a hundred things and I will line them up and knock them down and be very organized and, and getting number one, number two, number three, and work on them very sequentially. If I'm on item 57 and you come back at me and tell me I have another 10 things to do, I'll get overwhelmed and I'll get upset. And I'll be like, that's just not fair. What you're doing is not fair. My expectation was a hundred. I'm on item 57. I'm supposed to be done at a hundred. You're telling me that I have 110 items to do. I don't like this at all. That's what makes me upset. And, and, and so what happened is that I realized that when I'm coming home from work on those days where I'm just like thinking about my clients or work related or, or, or speaking engagement that's coming up or details related to taxes or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have the hundred things in my brain. I see that cup. Well, that cup became 101. And I didn't leave that cup there. I'm not the one who I wasn't at. I wasn't home. I wasn't home all day, you know? So, so that's somebody else's job. Somebody else didn't do their job. And now the expectation is that I'm the one who's supposed to clean up for them. So you can see right here, there's a lot of places where I had to kind of grow. The first one was I need to not always be full throttle at work and leaving the scraps at home. All right. So that's one. If it's hundred, if a hundred makes me overwhelmed, I needed to back off and recognize I need to just do it to eight, dial it back to 80. So I have enough bandwidth for my family. That's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is when I see the cup, the judgment or the expectation back to that word that I'm the one that they're leaving it out because I'm now the one who has to do it was also wrong. I don't have to take care of it right away. That's all right. That can be dealt with in a little bit. And there's other ways that I could encourage my kids and go back and talk to them. So, so now when I see it, or when I find myself getting frustrated, what I recognize is now it's, it's a trigger that's triggering me. And so when I, when I feel that trigger, rather than just responding, I, you know, with anger or, 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 or frustration, I would, I would be more inclined to share with Kristen, you know, what I'm experiencing and to say, listen, you know, today was just a rough day. I had people yelling at each other all day in my office, um, or I had, you know, a, a thousand emails that came through and I only got, you know, through 800 of them. Um, and I just feel like I'm constantly behind and, and I know it's not fair. But that cup right there really just, it just, it just triggered me. And so I'm sorry, you know? And so when I meet it, when I say it like that, she's much more inclined to respond with a sense of empathy and understanding to, to what I'm experiencing rather than if I just come in and say, what the heck's the matter? Why are you, why aren't you, how many times have we've talked about this? Why aren't you leaving? Why aren't you picking up that cup? Why aren't you teaching the boys and all sorts of accusations? Don't you know you're just encouraging them to be slobs? I didn't say that. That would be too harsh, but you know, but those are the type of things that at least run through your mind. And then even with my kids, what I've learned is that I can still go up to them and say, listen, guys, like we've talked about this. I need you guys to pick up this up. I need you guys to pick up the cup. All right. Let's take pride in our house. Let's make sure that we clean up after ourselves. You can't expect me or mom to have to do all that. So I need you guys to go ahead and pick this up and put it in the dishwasher right now. Got it? Yes, sir. Okay, great. And that's it. That's all it needs to be. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. They get it. They got it. We're done. But what this experience, what I realized in my anger um, that was sinful at times that I had to do the hard work of understanding, well, what's going on under the hood? And why am I reacting the way that I'm reacting? Why Why is it that something that is so benign as leaving a cup out on a coffee table, you know, creates this massive inner turmoil inside of my experience? And, and, and when I started asking those questions and praying with that and, and working through that interiorly, when I came to those other answers, I was much better equipped to deal with the cup, you know, as, as it stands now. And not just that cup, but, but other moments of being overwhelmed in my life sure. and, um, and knowing how to, to deal with it in a healthier way, in a way that utilizes my wife's strengths and gives her space to be able to attend to me, even in my neediness or even in those spaces. 
um, that, that of, of vulnerability. And when you do that in marriage, again, you know, that's, that's when, that's when the magic happens. Right. Um, so thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. So first yeah. of all, I was like, I was like looking in a mirror here for a second because <laughs> the, the, the description you had of like the, I'm, I'm good. If I know I have a hundred things to do, I'm going to set them up and knock them down. Like, look at me go. And then yeah. I'm going to come home and drink a protein shake and do a hundred pushups. Like it's go time, right? Like I, that's, that's how I operate. But you, if you're the person who gives me 101 and, and worse when it's your own fault, because you weren't doing your own job. And now I've got 101. Look, I yep. already did my job. I did my part. Yeah, I did. Right? I did. So, I did my side of the checklist. You know, you're supposed to be doing your side of the check. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly so you're, right. you're preaching to the choir. I think we have a few things in common uh, personality wise, but, but here's, here's what I want to, I want to make a theological point about Please. the gospel, right? Because our temptation when we're married to a sinner or with ourselves, when we get frustrated with ourselves is to think that the solution to sin is to just not do it. Like smarten the hell up. What is wrong with you? Wrong Why with do you? you do the thing? Right. And so we can project that onto our spouse or our kids or our coworkers or whatever. They need to stop. They just need to stop doing the thing that is damaging. And, and, and we might be right that it's a sin and yeah. they, and, and, but even but from here, a psychological perspective, that's terrible advice that I can give. Just stop being anxious. Just stop being anxious. What's the right. matter with you? Just and, stop being depressed. Can't you just, just get up? Like, that's not the way it works. And this is what St. Paul discovers in his relationship with the law, is that you can't just not do it. That's right. in, in fact, you find yourself more bound. Hmm. And what he found in the gospel was freedom from this, this sense because he could, he could be honest about his weakness and his brokenness and that actually gave him a path out and so th the language you used uh, about curiosity mm -hmm. right okay so okay i'm a sinner one thing i could say is i shouldn't be one and i should beat myself up and and i should just not do it and that works for maybe 12 hours on a good day right you can like willpower can get you you know a certain distance but what we know about willpower from psychological studies is that it's finite right like you can burn that sucker out, right? You so yep. if you're gonna beat if you're gonna beat your anger or your lust or your envy or whatever with willpower, that's 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 a short-term solution, like extremely <laughs> short-term solution. And when the willpower is gone, it's gonna come back worse, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so so you, yeah, you 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 followed your diet all day, and at nine thirty you got a stressful email and you ate four donuts. I mean, yeah. like that's, that's just how it works. Right. That's it. That's and, it. and instead of, instead of saying, I'm just going to beat it with willpower, you say, I wonder what the heck's going on with me. Mm -hmm. That actually gives you some possibilities there. And so I would, no matter what sin you're struggling with, uh, the, the question is like, you're a sinner, guy. Like, you know, if that's part of the good news, actually, is that like you yes. didn't have the option to not be. So don't own that, right? Like you're free, <laughs> right? That's part of the good news is you're free with that respect. So now you can actually be curious about yourself, which this is the thing. And you you said it more than once of how good psychology coincides with the insights of faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that psychology is telling us now in a, in a different key what St. Paul told us 2000 years ago, right? right. The, the, the way that interior freedom works is, is not by overburdened expectations and, and, you know, superhuman willpower. 
That's like, it's just not how you do things, but like a recognition of your own limitations and mercy and permission to be curious and the possibility of slow, uh, slow improvements with, you know, three steps forward, two steps back, yep. like that we can actually work with, you know, yep. that's how the Holy spirit is going to work because the Holy spirit is going to work with us as free beings not as robots that can be reprogrammed. And if you want to engage people in their freedom, that's messy, you know, mm -hmm. and we, we need to have patience for that kind of thing. So one of the things you said in, in your, um, it was in the module about uh, uh, physical intimacy, and it was if you went too far. Mm -hmm. And you, you said the first response is mercy, mercy, mercy. And I would extend that from going too far physically to like, everything <laughs> yeah that's right that's right that's right, right. that's right um yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. to talk to us a bit about like okay so you're married to a sinner and you are a sinner that that sinner needs mercy and so do you uh how does how does that play into healthy relationships and and where's the danger there where can that be become making excuses for people and and codependence too yeah again back to like what's the fruit of it in and what is actually contributing to this person's growth? Like, when you're talking about St. Paul, obviously we're speaking about Christ in, in the gospel. And when Jesus proposes the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it, it revolutionizes the whole, th the whole system. It's like, so, you know, th th let's talk about lust, you know? It's like, you've heard it said that, you know, um, it, you know, if you commit adultery, if you commit, I'm telling you, like, even if you look at a woman, you know, with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Like, what, what the heck? You know what I mean? Like, like, the, like, like, you, dude, you're just, you, you just went from here to here. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you, and like, that's good news, apparently. And it, exactly. It's good news, apparently. And, and, and so even when it comes to anger or any of the other, you know, sins that he speaks about, it's like, what the heck? Why did you just do that? Well, because it, the reason that it's good news is that because, what Christ recognizes is that the law only goes so far. And if it's just a punch list that you that you check off and you get the job done and then heaven is just that, it's like, oh, it's it's like a like as if heaven was just like this, uh, you know, task list. I got the honeydew list and I checked off all the lists. I got it done. OK, great. We go. This is the story of the rich young man. I mean, this is what, what Christ says. to him. It's like it's not just about doing the law. It's about letting the law transform your heart. And somewhere that got lost. And so he came and he was reminding us that this isn't just about the law. This is about what the law does that actually transforms us. And St. Paul had an encounter with that and experienced that and obviously took that theology to another level which is what we're the beneficiaries of here now 2000 years later of course and so and even in psychology we're seeing that and recognizing that if we meet our sinfulness with just complete harshness and criticism we're, we're not going to make any steps we're not going to make any steps this addiction research supports that we're not going to make any steps forward we have to be um, because all it does is it exacerbates our anxiety and it exacerbates our, our sense of shame and when we have heightened sense of shame, we know that we're just going to be more prone to, to fall or more prone to act out in, in whatever our preferred method of acting out is. And so this is why when we talk about like attachment theory, the, the answer to the answer to to shame isn't um, isn't out thinking it, um, but it is meeting it with empathy. It is meeting it with compassion. It's meeting it with with a sense of security. I mean, you think about the neural life when you just share with somebody that you've had some some awful thing happened when that person just meets that story 
with a sense of love and compassion and tenderness. Like that is healing. That's what healing is right there. Because now you're starting to rewrite the script a little bit of what this traumatic experience was before. And now that you're able to share it with somebody who meets it with love and tenderness, like that's the process of healing that allows you to start assimilating and, and reconciling yourself to your past. So again, where's the line? Well, like let's talk about something like pornography, all right? So for example, these are examples that I, that I give in, in it. If pornography is leading towards pressure from the other person to act out in ways that wants to mimic the pornography, well, there's a line that needs to be, there's a boundary that needs to be drawn. If there are certain questions back to dress that the, that the, the, the spouse here is asking you to dress a certain way that is maybe more provocative, again, that you don't feel comfortable with, again, that's where a boundary needs to be drawn. Or also if, if um, uh, there's uh, just even more pressure to, to be sexual uh, or you go further than you feel comfortable going further, again, those are places where you want to draw a line. And so it's not saying that you can just meet that with, with mercy and be like, well, it's okay, you know, we can keep doing whatever we're doing. No, 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 be merciful, but then also draw the line. Like if my wife, if I was barking at her because of the cup or barking at the kids, barking at her, we'll just say that, keep it in a relationship because of the cup and blaming her for not doing it. If she, she would have every right to come at me later in the day or even in that moment and tell me like, listen, you crossed a line and, uh, and that was really hurtful what you said. And if, and if I've done my work and hopefully if I'm at a different point, I'd be able to look at that and, and, and say, you know, you're absolutely right. And I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Like it wasn't, I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said the things that I said. And if I mean that sincerely and I'm willing then to, to do the work of not repeating that again, I'm not going to be perfect, but at least trying my best to, to not repeat that behavior, then that's what you want to see. So when it, when it comes to relationships and even in dating, I know we've been talking a lot about marriage, but even in dating, if a line's been crossed or something's been said or something's happened and, and, and you felt uncomfortable with it and you shared that discomfort with the other person and that is met with, again, uh, a genuine apology, um, but then also sincere effort to want to, to grow and to, to move forward with it. And they're actually doing something, not just saying it, but they're actually willing to listen to the podcast, read the book, go to counseling, go to a support group, actually demonstration of the things that they want, they needed to improve whatever said behavior is, um, then, then that's what you want to see. But if after three, six months, even with those best attempts, nothing is changing and nothing has gotten better, well, then that's an indication that it, it might not be, it might not be the right time to stay in that relationship. Um, that's at least in a dating context. That's, those right. are just kind of some, some parameters, um, that, that I would offer. Um, so again, mercy doesn't mean that you could just let the person walk all over you or that you're going to be always, that, that would be codependency. That would be a false notion of mercy. You can forgive for sure, but you also need to, you know, stand up for yourself and, and say, and, and articulate your experience, what, what you felt in that. And hopefully again, that the, that the other person meets that with a sense of humility and, and is willing then to, uh, to, to reciprocate that. Right. So that's what I'd offer. No, that's, that's really, really helpful. I, I feel like there's a balance that, that's, that we learn to strike in long-term relationships <laughs> between like, uh, so being clear about what's acceptable and what's not, and what's, you know, uh, there are certain things that, that are not going to fly. Uh, and also, and, but also meeting the things that lead to those things with empathy, because that gives the person a better chance of actually changing it than mm -hmm. meeting it with shame. So mm -hmm. absolutely there. And then there's this other factor I heard, 
someone said once, you know, when you discern who to marry, you're discerning what problems you're going to deal with for the rest of your life. <laughs> a cynic, <laughs> but, but there's truth but, in that. But there's, there's truth, a truth in it. There's and a truth in that. There's so, a truth in that. So on the one hand, there's the like, how do you help the sinner you're you're married to or dating? You know, if if it's not to the point where this is a, a no go, because if you right. decide you can't marry them because they're a sinner, well then you're opting out altogether, right? So Yeah, that's exactly um, right. Yep. So if you're working, you know, to, to help and you, you know, it's, it's called to, to the call is to holiness and this sacrament is, is to make us holy, right? So this is how it's supposed to work mm-hmm. and it's messy on the one hand. And on the other hand, a recognition that they're going to be a sinner till they die. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be certain things. Sometimes you have problems for, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and then you don't have them anymore. That, that, that does happen, right? Mm-hmm. There is like complete healing of certain kinds of things can happen. And there are things that are going to, that's going to be the person you live with. And that's going to be their pattern of temptation and sin for as long as they're alive. So, um, and there's a way, it, it, there's a sort of beautiful way I, I've seen in older couples, the way they talk about the 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 sort of, persisting sin of the other they don't call it persisting sin but you know what i mean right (laughs) the way they just recognize that this is the person i'm with um we we have developed healthy patterns of keeping this within bounds so that it's not you know having someone hurting another person or whatever like we all know what to do when this happens uh, and, and, and then we go through the process and it's not a despairing of, of the possibility of ever being healed, but it's a recognition that we live in a messy history. I'm thinking now of an unmarried example, you know, C.S. Lewis lived with his brother who was a raging alcoholic, uh, based largely in, in his experiences in the war, mm-hmm. right? Which is not uncommon that post-traumatic stress untreated is going to get self-medicated with alcohol. Like that's, yeah. that, that word didn't even exist in C.S. Lewis's time. Right, but, <laughs> no but idea what post-traumatic stress disorder was, and yeah. but he lived with his brother with patience and humility before this monster. Not, I don't mean his brother is the monster. I mean right. the problem right. is the monster, right? right. Um, and the sin is is the monster. And to what degree it's a sin, I can't judge in this case, right? I mean, correct. we don't know yeah. about the level That's of freedom, correct. but but That's just correct. for for, yep. for for argument's sake, right? Um, d- so, so maybe as a, as a last word, do you have any thoughts on like living with yourself or with another sinner where there's a persistent thing? It, it, it's not always extreme or dangerous. It, it's just, this is the pattern of sin that is going to be my struggle or my spouse's struggle. Barring some miraculous intervention, they'll be sure there'll be ups and downs and, and whatever else, and maybe some slow progress, but this is the person I married. And it's unlikely if, if in the first 25 years that hasn't cleared up that I could expect it to clear up in the next five. Uh, yeah. So, so there's, there's something about the virtue of patience there. Yeah. I would say a couple things. I mean, I think John Gottman, who's another big time marriage researcher, you know, says that 73% of arguments that couples have are, are what he calls, you know, um, uh, uh, unsolvable problems. You know, these persistent arguments that happen, these, these these just continued ways that you you miss each other. So like in-laws, for example, tends to be one of those like unsolvable problems, like that there isn't a quick fix to it. And so you, you argue about it often. Um, 
And again, that's not necessarily sinful. This is where kind of maybe our language needs to be a little bit, you know, modified because it's not all, not, sin isn't the reason that we argue all the time. I mean, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just what we've been talking about, you know, that there are just temperamental differences and, and differences in the way that we kind of view things that creates the, the, the friction. So in the context of it being sinful specifically, I would say that if you're drawing those boundaries in trying to help the other person navigate whatever the issues that they're experiencing, then, then, then I think that's enough. Like you said, the, the, you're going to marry somebody. So part, part of marriage is this, is it's like when you're dating, this is the way I remember, that's the way I think about it. It's like you, you get a, like a little bit of a, like a little vision of the person. You get to see a little bit of the good and a little bit of the bad. Well, once you've been married for seven or 10 years, that little vision is still there, but now it's like the horizons are broadened and like you get to see more of the person which means you see more of the good and more of the bad. And when you see more of the good and more of the bad, do you still choose them? Because at the end of the day, the sacrament is, is founded on a choice. It is a choice that you come freely before the altar, before the people of God, to confess your intentions to one another and to make a vow to be committed to one another till death do you part. And it is a free act of the will. And it is a choice that you make. And so that choice is what anchors the, 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 the sacrament of marriage. And so when you've made that choice, do you continue to make that choice? And it's not a choice that you just make on the day of your altar. Yes, of course, that's what does it. But to, be, to have a healthy marriage means that you choose that person as they are every single day of your life. And so as you see more, as the, as the horizon gets broadened of what you see about this person, there's more there that you have to embrace. There's more that you have to choose. There's more that you have to accept for who that person is. And so, like you said, some of it is not, not a settling, but a certain acceptance of there's certain qualities here that just aren't going to change. They're just not going to be different. And, and, and that's okay because there's certain qualities within you that are just not going to change and it's going to be okay. And so how do you guys learn how to navigate that? How do you learn how to walk together with that? But again, are there certain things that you do try to do? Yeah, of course. So another example for myself that I can offer, I said earlier, you know, that I'm, I'm the spender, my wife is the saver. We listened to Dave Ramsey of Financial Peace University maybe about 11 years ago, and that fundamentally changed my relationship with money. The fundamentally changed the way that I think about money, how I operate with money, all of that. And what ended up happening in, in response to that is that I realized that my wife, because she is more meticulous and 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 more data driven, um, the fun, the being the person who managed the budget ended up like stressing her out. Like she couldn't, like it really was not healthy for her to manage the budget because her temperament just wasn't. It was we needed it when we were first like making pennies um, in grad school and living off of that. We were, I was very grateful for her fr for frugality, frugalness, whatever the right ways, frugal nature, whatever the right term is there. Um, but, but at some point, it, I realized that for me to grow up, I have to take over the budget and I need to, I need to take it on. And so I did. So, I, so I've been managing the budget for the last 10 years in our family. And that's been a real blessing for us. And it's been a real growth for me because I'm not naturally inclined to, to manage budgets. I'm more like, yeah, let's great. Let's go have some fun, right? But, but because I now see the numbers and I see what the money is, I can't play that excuse. I can't, I can't say, well, we have enough to, to just go do whatever we want because we don't, because I'm looking at it. I can see it. And so it's forced me to grow up. Now, 
even now, am I still the one that is like, temp I'm always like, oh man, what's the latest thing that's coming out? You know, that would be fun to get that, you know, but like, because I'm the one who now sees the money, I'm like, well, I can't do that right now. Or I can set up a budget plan. I can save for it and can work towards it. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't mean that like my wife's frustration with me about wanting to spend money may still be present, but because I've taken over the budget and I've done a good job with it, she's learned how to trust me. That even if I have moments where I'm like, you know what, I think we're just going to go to the movies tonight. And uh, as a family, I think that's what we need. That that spontaneity um, is, isn't, isn't, always going, isn't always going to be met with suspect because she knows I've done my job, right? And so I think that's the place that we're, we're trying to recognize is that I'm always going to have an inclination to want to spend more. But because I'm now doing my job with regards to the budget specifically, like that is, and this is way beyond dating. You're not, you're not having this conversation in dating. This is, this is more like marriage advice here. Like is, is that I'm, I, I've taken that on. And so now I'm willing to grow. And so again, like, is there a place where we're always going to have a, a, a tension between it? Like she gets a hundred dollars for her birthday or from somebody like she won't spend any of it ever at any point, you know? And I'm like, come on, girl, like get yourself something. Like that's what it's there for. Like, if not, I'm going to use it to get yourself something that you want because you need to go get yourself something. Right. Um, so we just, you just learn how to navigate it. I don't know how else to say it. You, you learn right. how to settle into it and to accept and to say, okay, I can do a little bit more here. I can grow a little bit more back to that pursuer withdrawal. I'm the pursuer, certainly in the relationship. I can back off a little bit, but I can also encourage you to, to step into it a little bit, to be a little bit more like that. And so that's where over the lifetime of a marriage, your good traits actually rub off on one another and you, you, you grow to, to lean and to support on one another and to trust one another. Um, even though we're still sinners, even though my wife is not perfect, even though I'm not perfect. And when we cross lines or when we say things that are hurtful or do things that are hurtful, um, we certainly, you know, admit those faults to one another and, uh, and we, we ask for mercy and, uh, and we keep on going and, um, and that's what we're striving for. But one of the things I see in, in the mature couples is that is this patience and mercy with, with the foibles of the other, which, which are sometimes sinful and sometimes not. Right. Correct. Um, but maybe, and this is a kind of a, a final thought. We're coming to the end of our, our time together here. Um, just as you were talking, it struck me, this is something I've learned in parenting. I've also learned it in formation work. Uh, but it's also, it's also an interesting part of couples dynamics. And it's your strength is your weakness. You know, the, the thing, the thing about you, when you are saying, you know, we're going to spontaneously, the family's going to go out to a movie, right? Part of, part of your wife's reaction is like, I'm a little nervous because I married a spender and that freaks me out. And, and maybe in some circumstances that spending could even be sinful because it's irresponsible with our resources. Yep. Not necessarily in this case, but it's, it's possible yeah, yeah. that it, right. it's a sinful thing. On the other side, why the heck did she marry you? Right. Because I'm a spontaneous person. <laughs> because you're in, ex, 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 exactly, right? And exactly. So, exactly. so my, the yep. things that frustrate our partners mm -hmm. are often the, the other side of the coin of what yep. attracted them to us in the first place. And, and I have to do this work in raising children. I have to do this work in forming men for the diaconate is I'm not going to make you into a different person. That's, that's a fool's errand. Um, I'm going to help you to recognize that this struggle uh, that, that you need to, to deal with to be the, a more complete and healthy version of yourself is actually the flip side of a great strength. And, and, 
And so your job is not actually to hide that part of you that leads to the struggle, but to integrate it in a healthier way and understand yourself. Because if, if, you, if, if you are ashamed by that thing, whatever it is, and you bury it, you're probably going to bury your gifts with it. Uh, sure. What you need to do is understand how it fits with who you are, how, how it's, you know, it's maybe the way it comes out in this or that circumstance is unhealthy, but it's actually, um, it's deep root is, is part of the personality and, and the gifts God gave you. And it's, it's, it's being called forth into something better and more whole and more healthy. Right. And, and I just, it, that can give us patience with others and with ourselves to know that the, whatever that struggle is, is actually almost certainly a flip side of something that's a great good that God, that, that we appreciate as a God-given gift in this person in their best moments, right? Yeah, that's right. I say that all the time in counseling because people do come into it with great shame about some issue. It's like, okay, well, let's flip this. Like, what is it, what is it that's really happening? And let's see how we can Temperate would be the word that I would use. And, and like you said, like understanding when is this skill set working for you and when is it working against you? And that is often the work of counseling is being able to say, oh, okay, so the sensitivity that I have, this ability to, to be aware can work against me when, when it leads me towards anxiety because now I'm, I'm overly conscious about, about, about things. Um, or even within pornography, things that we've been talking about, acting out, like what, what's going on? You know, we get into the weeds of some of these questions. Is it, what are you experiencing? why you know and so where where is it that it's working for you and where is it that it's working against you and then how do you how do you temper that in a way that allows the gifts to, to be utilized in their best version more times than not like right that's where that's what that's where you're trying to go after yeah and 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 so much of making a marriage work is learning how to help each other in those right? The, the patience and the empathy yep. that it takes to get to, that's what we need to be our best selves is for people who are patient and empathetic when we're not, because that yes. allows whatever that gift in us that they, they saw in us when they decided to marry us. Uh, well, and and that that's will, what marriage is. That will glow so brightly on the last day Amen. Uh, is going to get polished uh, from the, you know, the, the tar tarnish what's the tarnish is tarnish a noun as well as a verb anyway i guess so <laughs> whatever's on it now right so dr mario well you I, and i'll I say can, this real quick just just, yeah. just to wrap this up is and, and i end the series with the same statement is that you you're not perfect on the day you get married but hopefully you're perfect by the time you end your marriage you know what i'm saying <laughs> oh yes and I, now i also believe in purgatory like, so i believe in purgatory too so so certainly so maybe not complete perfection certainly right. but maybe you but, could maybe who knows some marriages marriage, are that good that get to that point but but that's my point is, is a that, kind of purgatory but it is of course yeah. we experience purgation now obviously like everything yeah. you just talked about everything we've been talking about this whole episode about awareness and growth all of that's a purgative process the, the intermingling between what's sinful and what's psychological how do I grow in greater assimilation of it? What do I know is my strength? What do I know is my weakness? All of that's a purgative process. Why? Because the reason that Jesus upped the ante with the Beatitudes is because that's the best version of us. And that best version takes a lot of freaking work and right. a lot of freaking grace. <laughs> and right. so like, as we cooperate with that grace and we allow the transformation to happen over the course of our life 
through the state of life that we in, we do become the best version of ourselves. And certainly, if we're not done by the end of marriage, well then, hey, praise the Lord. We're grateful for, for purgatory to be able to continue that journey for however many thousand years it'll take for me to be the best version <laughs> of myself to be able to get to where I'm supposed to be. But that is exactly what you're looking at. And so again, bringing it back to dating, you're not going to be perfect on the day that you get married, but you want to at least start seeing the, the seeds of that, the seeds of growth, that there's been some transformation that's happened, not a wholesale transformation, but some growth, some development, some um, uh, you know, capacity to, 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 to see a little bit better, to be a better version of yourself. To, so that way, when you're in marriage, you can continue that process um, until it's natural conclusions. So that's Amen. what I'll yeah, uh, yeah. What's what's the line from Saint Paul that that God will not uh, neglect to complete the work He has begun in you? Amen. Amen. You know, uh, Amen. and and for most of us, marriage is going to be one of the key places where He's completing that work. Amen. So, Amen. Doctor Mario, we're going to have to have you back. Uh, Sounds you great, and I Brett. Could Anytime. go on for for much longer, but it's yeah. been great to have you have you with us. Uh, God bless, uh, blessings on your ministry. Check out the dating well course. Say again, the website they should look it up at. Go, go to faithandmarriage.org. Faithandmarriage.org. Uh, God bless you and your family. Thank you. You too. All right, everybody, here we go. We made it all the way to the very end. God bless you. You get a gold star for finishing the episode. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Sockold. Please check out his podcast, uh, Thinking Faith, which you can listen to a lot of great stuff that they have. He's written a lot about transubstantiation, and so he speaks about it often, and you can get those themes and certainly on his podcast, Thinking Faith podcast, together with his co-host, Deacon Eric. But certainly, if you've enjoyed this episode, again, always looking forward to, to hearing from my listeners. This is my first two-hour episode. Again, it was supposed to be two parts, but I put it together in one. What you think? Was it too long? You know, was it just right? Was it engaging the whole way through? I know other podcasters regularly drop two, three-hour, four-hour episodes. Not something that I have typically done. So I'm very open to hearing feedback from you, my listeners. So if you enjoyed it, great. Let me know on social media. DM me at Dr. Mario Sakas on Facebook or on Instagram. If you didn't like it, let me know. I'm very open to comments. I, I love being able to test different formats with the show and trying to figure out what the audience likes and, and what you guys don't like. So let me know. All right. God bless you guys. I pray that you enjoyed this conversation. God bless you again and have a great day.